Let's talk about that speech with Claire and Rachel. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Let's Talk About Speech podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Claire. And we're back for another episode. Just a reminder that you can find all of our brand new resource guides on our Teachers Pay Teachers account. So if you need to check that out, go to our Instagram and you can find the link there. So today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of interviewing Ceres Rebajas Verdejo, and we are so excited to talk with her about a topic that Rachel and I are really excited to pick her brain about. Um, Ceres, thank you so much for being here with us and chatting with us today. Thank you for having me. This is good. It's, it came together so beautifully and quickly. I love it. Yes, we love it too. We we love the having you reach out to us and having our listeners reach out to us. So we really appreciate that. And happy um, new year. I haven't yes, yes, I know. Happy, <laughs> <laughs> happy new year to you as well. Um, so we wanted to start by you telling us a little bit about your background as an SLP and really where your specialty and areas of interest lie. Well, my SLP work actually started when my sister was born. Um, I was born in Puerto Rico. And so was she, my sister, Sita. Hi, Sita, wherever you are in the world. (laughs) And uh, she was born with spina bifida, um, which is not, you usually don't have any speech concerns with that necessarily. But then she had hydrocephaly. Mm -hmm. And she, that was the excess liquid on her brain that was then affecting different things in her body. She had a different organ organal issues, um, different organs were functioning. And then we realized, oh yeah, this thing that runs in our family, my mom's side of the family, stuttering came to play. And for my fellow colleagues who know anything about fluency and stuttering, it's more common with boys Mm -hmm. and with men, but when it shows up in women, it's more severe. And so all my mom had four brothers, all of them had stuttering. She had a little bit of it, but when it showed up with my sister, it was very severe. It was very prominent. Mm-hmm. And so she had OT, PT, and speech, mm-hmm. and we we're only two years apart. So uh, we were living in the hospitals with all of her therapies, including the speech therapy. And I was a part of her team, as a whole family is, in starting to implement her speech therapy. And then fast forward, my brother was born, and he had a diaphragmatic hernia, which is a hole in the diaphragm. And all the organs that were below the diaphragm are up in his chest, not letting enough space for his lungs to grow. So he had three major surgeries the first three years of his life. My sister had eight. And with my brother, after all of these surgeries, we were like, oh, he's not responding to his name. What's going on there? We were just trying to make sure he was alive. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, we got his hearing checked, realized he had a profound to severe bilateral sensory neural hearing loss. So he needed hearing aids. He was doing speech therapy for that. He had an amazing speech therapist. Both of them did. My sister doesn't study anymore. He speaks very clearly given that he has a profound or severe hearing loss. Mm -hmm. Everyone comments on it. And so I've been around this my whole life. So when I was talking about, well, what can I possibly do as a career? This was definitely one of the ones that was a front runner. And I took my first class. And as soon as I took the first class, I was like, this is it. This is the thing. And that's now more than 16 years ago. I've been practicing for 16 years. 
That's amazing. That is an amazing story too. I love that. It, that it's so close to your heart in that way. Yeah. I think that's the big thing about me is that I, all the families that I work with, I see them as my family because mm-hmm. this, it's not only my sister, and my brother, then I have cousins that have autism. You know, it's just, it's been around forever and it's, it's very, very meaningful work for sure. Definitely. Um, so I know one thing you're really passionate about is um, different multicultural and multilinguistic factors related to providing that like effective therapy services. So can you touch a little bit on what those are, like specifically what those factors are relating to our profession? Yes, yes. Well, right away with both of my siblings, there wasn't bilingual speech language pathologist. I mean, this was more than 30, 35 years ago now. Mm -hmm. Um, There's still not enough of us. Uh, And no matter what, even if you are bilingual, you're not going to be able to cover every single language possible out there. There's just, there's not enough monolingual, there's not enough bilingual therapists. And so one of the things that I find to be really important is really looking at the myths that are still prevalent about bilingualism and multilingualism. Mm -hmm. Um, My siblings were told to not speak Spanish. They were told that it would be confusing. This is still a lie that is unfortunately way too prevalent and spread around. And the parents are being told this. Mm-hmm. And even if they aren't being told it directly, oftentimes they're being told it indirectly, implicitly with behavior, with how we provide documents and materials, You know how they're addressed, if their input is included in the process, in what way they're included in the process. So. Fortunately, my parents were both bilingual educators. Otherwise, there were many moments that we talk about even to this day where they could have been railroaded as Mm -hmm. parents. Um, And so really keeping in mind as a clinician and and also as anybody that's an educator, really, to be in, keep in mind all the different myths and realities around multilingualism and bilingualism, Mm -hmm. Um, one of them being that there is a confusion. That there, that there is not a benefit to being multilingual. If you ask any other country in the first world, that's not even a thing. They're like, are you kidding me? This is not only super beneficial cognitively, but socially, um, professionally. There's just so many benefits. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, and um, it really helps having a lot of more semantic networks and you know connections to different parts of your brain. It helps with the longevity of your life the quality of your life. And so when people mention this, these different myths and particularly that one, I really like to be very informed about all of it. I and mean, we could talk just on myths alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've done guest lecturing at different universities where they ask me, hey, talk to these grad students about some of these considerations and we'll talk at length, just maybe you know, 30 minutes on just that alone. But the biggest one is it's not actually a confusion. It's usually people in schools and in, and in other settings, but my, one of my biggest specialties is working in homes and early intervention and in schools, is this, this preponderance of like, we don't have the staff, so let's not do it. Let's not mm. try. And then how can you try and do it if you are monolingual um, or if you don't know the language of the child? Um, so one of the things to that's big is to convey to the family and convey to the staff, have an actual school culture or company culture 
where you convey to all families that that their culture is valued and seen and appreciated. And there's a lot of different ways of doing that from noting you know, the, the holidays of their country to their dress. Um, I love using culturegrams. Culturegrams.com is a great resource where you can look up any country and not only will it tell you about different values and traditions and holidays, as a speech path, it also tells you all the sounds in their language. Wow, that's which, amazing. Which comes in handy when you're looking at, is this a language difference or a language disorder? Mm-hmm. When, I first, when I first came out of grad school, I had to do a complete overhaul in my first caseload because I was getting referrals from students that it was actually more of a language difference, but they mm-hmm. were like, oh, they're behind. And so about a third of my caseload, I dismissed. Mm-hmm. And I had to do a lot of education of the staff of what was a valid and appropriate referral. Mm-hmm. Doing a lot more screenings before I'm going right into, into the evaluation space. This was before RTI was really, really implemented as well. Now a lot of schools do this RTI process to address this. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely way too many schools that go right to evaluation and not asking a lot more questions. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I guess going off of that, then, um, where, where do you see that big difficulty or really that big gap for SLPs when they are trying to provide appropriate services, but like you said, maybe they are monolingual and, and they don't, they aren't as familiar with the child or their patient's language or culture. Um, you know, what are, what are those barriers to being culturally inclusive? Well, one, if you do actually value multiculturalism and multilingualism, thank you first. Thank you. (laughs) Um, It's it's not a small thing. And and I'm really grateful for that. Uh, Reach out to other bilingual um, and multilingual SLPs and psychologists, occupational therapists, ask them and tap into what they know about the culture. Ask the parents if the parents do know English. What's going on? How has it been for you since the diagnosis or since your concerns? How do you feel about the difficulties? How does your extended family feel about it? If they even know about it, because there's a lot of hiding. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, depending on the, how much of a stigma there is on the family and if there is a multi-generational household mm-hmm. um, involved, how, how has that been? Has it been just, oh, we're going to ignore it? Has it been, oh, they, they relate it to something else like you know maybe they think that it's that the child is possessed and that's why they have these challenges do they think that it's the mom's fault because she crossed the border while she was pregnant is it you know like there's I've heard so many different examples of of irrationalizations around why a child has a particular diagnosis or challenge Mm -hmm. um that's a whole other (laughs) episode right Mm -hmm. there um that really not assuming that they get it and that they don't need to revisit the, the, their grieving process, how they're, how they're navigating it, being informed about what's going on with their child. I think that that's one of the things. Um, the barrier for anybody, even if you don't have a multilingual or bilingual caseload, is time. Hmm. Yeah. Time, especially like I remember when I was in the Chicago public schools right out of grad school, I went, I would start my school year at maybe 47 kids Mm -hmm. and I would end at anywhere from 75 to 90. 
-hmm. when we're legally not supposed to have more than six, right? Fast forward, you know, toward my fifth year, there were grievances, you know, with the board and all these different things. And they went on strike because everybody, it wasn't just me, everybody was overloaded in their caseloads. And so I was supervising SLPAs, I was supervising CFs, I was doing bilingual evaluations, not just for my own school, but that would get sent off to do evaluation somewhere else and still mm-hmm. be accountable for my minutes. Um, so that time piece is, is not a small thing. And yet there are some creative ways to work around it. Um, definitely organizational systems. That's one of my specialties is for myself and for my colleagues is creating organizational systems with scheduling, with how to collaborate with other staff members, getting really creative about who actually handles what goals. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't feel like in this day and age, we can say, oh, this is only in my realm. There's so much overlap with OT and special ed teachers that there's a lot of stuff that was, hey, can I just put my name as a provider on this other goal that you're doing and kind of do a lot of cross support and, and intervention, um, especially if one of these other providers are bilingual. Mm-hmm. Like why not have them be some, take some of the heavy lifting and you handle some of the other things? Mm-hmm. Um, it really depends on the age group that we're servicing. I've been fortunate to work with kids from birth till through high school and into adulthood. Mm-hmm. And with each of them, it's very, very different. But if we, if we talk and tap into the parents, if we tap into other bilingual providers that are part of our multidisciplinary team, ask them what they know about the culture, ask them what they know about the language, the sounds in the language, use these resources. I'm going to mention a couple other ones for y'all, for your listeners as well, before we part ways today, like the culture grams, yeah. that would be really helpful. Um, also with the use of interpreters, yes. there's a variety of quality in interpreters that you can use and um I used to I started off being the interpreter for my team a lot of times Mm -hmm. with the with the Spanish-speaking kiddos now I was fortunate and I emphasize fortunate to work with a school that had 44 languages represented in the school like talk about trial by fire yeah no kidding Yeah, that's amazing. And that was the home languages. So obviously the instruction wasn't in all those languages. Yeah. But we did the home inventory and it was a lot of African refugees. There was a lot of people from the Sudan, um, from uh, different Asian countries. It was just a plethora, not to mention all the different dialects of Spanish because there's not mm-hmm. just one dialect. So really, really awesome. And one of the things that helped immensely when they're available is working very, very closely with the ELL, the mm-hmm. English language learner teacher. Mm-hmm. The schools that have a lot of different languages represented usually have then somebody like that. And if they don't, they should get one like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and so collaborating with her in, from my experience was phenomenal. And I've gotten to now she set the bar so high that when I work with other ELL teachers, I was like, are you going to bring it? <laughs> <laughs> she really knew her stuff and she was handling beautifully. Mm-hmm. All She was really the one that was, that was handling all those 44 languages and, and bridging the gap 
between that language and English. So then, then the, the general education teacher mm-hmm. could keep the momentum and not have to do quite as much differentiated instruction, but she still obviously had to. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, another thing that I just want to call out because this is kind of a soapbox that Claire and I have stepped onto numerous times because we went to graduate school <laughs> is the lack of like formal education, right? Like we had to go to um, undergrad to get our bachelor's. Then obviously we had to go to graduate school to get a master's degree to give us the certification, right? And the credentials to be able to do this job. And if you like had to think, Claire, how many times multicultural like factors were even brought up? I could Maybe, maybe once, once in our zone, you know, when you're, when you're looking at different dialects, but I honestly, learned more about it in the praxis study guide mm-hmm. than I did in person. And that's a huge yeah. problem. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And it's, and it's interesting that you mentioned that, cause that was another thing I was going to mention that is a barrier. Mm-hmm. That's part of why I'm asked to speak as a guest in different universities, mm-hmm. uh, because the, the students know that this is the world we live in. They're Mm -hmm. already aware. Hey, I I watch TV. I listen to the news. I see who's in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It isn't just English. So how in the world am I going to be able to do this? I want to do do these families justice and honor their culture, but what tools do I have available? So um, really, really tapping into what I mentioned before. And then also, yes, we definitely need way more education, way more classes on this topic. Um, ASHA does a really good job of providing some and supplementing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's not the same as, okay, I I got this and then how can I apply it? And then who can I go to to ask these these questions before I like unintentionally put my foot in there, my mouth? Mm Because that's that's a lot of people that they have the best of intentions, but they're really worried about offending families, um, talking, looking at, okay, what's for each culture, the physical distance. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Those are different considerations. Some of them it's about eye contact. What is the different levels of eye contact? And so if, is it autism or is it just that they're showing you respect by not looking at you, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Well, that, yeah. that's such an amazing point that you make about making it applicable because yes, we can learn about different cultures and we can learn about different linguistic systems and all these things that you read in a book, but right. How do we apply it when we are with a family from a different culture or from a different background? That's really, I think where the education is missing. Um, mm-hmm. because I think in grad school, right. We were probably given whatever text or something to read Mm -hmm. on it, which is great. I'm sure that there's, I know credentials are changing as well. Um, too, I I work at a university and we, we have different elements we have to implement in our, um, graduate studies and we, it's changing. Like there is a lot Mm -hmm. more education around it, surrounding it. But again, that applicable piece is just, Mm -hmm. I think the biggest part that's missing and okay, you know, these things, but then when you're in the room with somebody, what's, what's going to happen or what, mm-hmm. what's going to be the hardest part, um, yes. and preparing for those kinds of situations and interactions. Yeah. I love, I actually offer consultations to people who want to like get reversed. If they want to talk through a, a tricky situation or meeting oh, wow. beforehand, I'll do that. Um, the other thing too, though, is, you know, I mentioned earlier about talking to the parents, but you don't always have access to them. Right. Like I right. like, 
maybe you're messaging them, but I had in my, in the Chicago public schools, not, it wasn't even a language barrier. It was a socioeconomic barrier a lot of times because some of my parents had two, three jobs. Mm-hmm. So it, there were no really transportation. Wanted, yeah. They, yeah. They were really wanting to be involved, but it just, how do you reach them? In what way do you reach them? Mm-hmm. So, you know, really being creative about that was also, was also a big part of, of my journey. Um, but let's say you can reach the parents. Let's say you can meet with them. Refer to them by their name, mm-hmm. like truly, like their whole name or like whichever, ask them which way they would like to be addressed. Mm-hmm. The, a lot of parents have told me that most, well, they don't like that, that a lot of professionals will just say mom or dad instead of Mrs. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so. Like they're trying to avoid because they can't um, pronounce it or they it, don't mispronouncing know how to say it. it. Mm-hmm. But, but it's like practice, practice, practice. Yeah. Like I have a tricky name. I get it. Even right. if someone messes it up, the fact that they tried mm-hmm. is such a, a lovely gesture that mm-hmm. it doesn't go unnoticed by these families. It's a small way that they feel seen and, and acknowledged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in, in part of their community, they would be called by their name. So if you want to get a kind of a foot in the door in their community, right. that's a small way to do it. Um, ask them about their child's strengths, that where they shine, where their interests are, because the parents, we do that as part of the IEP process already. Mm-hmm. But it's very quick. Sometimes it's like we're reporting at the parent and sharing what we know is their strengths, but not like, where do you feel super proud of them? What's, what's something that maybe we don't know that they do well. Like I had a parent recently when I asked that say, Oh my God, he told me the funniest joke the other day. And they, she got to share the joke and it made us all laugh. Mm-hmm. And it broke up the seriousness because most of the meeting is where they're having challenges and difficulties, where they're delayed and, and it's, so, it's just bogs it down. So breaking it up with some jokes and some of those moments of like, oh yeah, that makes me think of this funny thing that mm-hmm. so-and-so did in class really helps them see that you're seeing their child in totality mm-hmm. and not just through the lens of their difficulties. And that's that. valuable no matter what the background is of the family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I love that you're giving our listeners some ideas. What would you think are like, one or two like major steps or major efforts that they could make towards being culturally responsive and inclusive? So definitely check out the sounds that are in the language that the child is exposed to. I love actually listening to the parents and doing a little bit of quick transcription because sometimes it's the accent and the modeling of the parents in English that you'll hear that in the child. Mm -hmm. Is it that different from their parents or is it or is it pretty similar? And it's actually, that's a, a, a great guide. Again, if you can get to the parents, right? If you right. get to hear them and talk with them and if they speak English. Uh, the other pieces of it are important grammatical structures of the language. Mm-hmm. You know, in Spanish, the adjective comes, um, let's see, rana verde. So that comes after the, the object. In English, mm-hmm. it's the adjective comes before, mm-hmm. green frog right? So these little tweaks that can affect and you can help you with differentiated instruction. Uh, reach out to a bilingual speech language pathologist to conduct the evaluation at least and give tailored recommendations for what you can do to do the differentiated instruction. I, I know that there's not enough of us. Uh, people can reach out to me if they want me to ever do a bilingual evaluation or look over. I've actually looked over other people's evaluations to give them input 
But mm-hmm. one of the things that happens with that, if there's a trickiness about, hey, I know that this sound occurs in English and in Spanish, but does it, does it show up? Does it develop earlier or later? Mm-hmm. Like the milestones are slightly different, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to give the child as much credit as possible so that it's the least restrictive environment so that you're giving them the most chance? How long have they been exposed to the language? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other piece too is, Gosh, there's so much here. Which one first? <laughs> I love the big bang for your buck items that you use. You know, we all have those things in our toolbox that we use over and over again and we kind of adapt, right? Mm-hmm. Like when it was early intervention for me, it was like animal toys puzz- and puzzles where like I could do anything mm-hmm. with animal toys and puzzles, <laughs> right? Um, know in that language, those key things that you use all the time. Mm-hmm. make it easier for yourself. I also provide, and I can, I can give this to y'all. I'll try to find it. The starter phrases mm-hmm. for Spanish, I have them handy that I give to other providers that have Spanish speaking children in their caseload. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you're doing a lot of, I want, or I see sentences, if you're doing, you know, certain key verbs that are like super highly frequently occurring, get, make sure you know those mm-hmm. in the language and you can model it. Uh, I still choose to do pre-academic skills and academics in the in English, but then I give the child the benefit of the doubt, and I can try to remember and write down in the language phonetically if it's a completely different language that isn't Spanish. Right. Um, the, what that would be in their language, but they're probably not exposed to those academic concepts in their language, mm-hmm. depending on when they're coming over. So that more academic things I'll do in English. And the more social, turn-taking, conversational skills, I can toggle between the two. So one of the biggest questions that a lot of speech-language pathologists ask me is like, is it okay to go back and forth between the two? Yes, because going back between the two is not going to confuse the child as long as you're not doing two languages within one utterance. Right. If the entire instruction, the entire utterance is in English, and then the entire utterance is in Swahili, or the entire utterance is in Japanese, whatever it is, it's not going to confuse them. But if you're doing like, yo quiero, yo quiero um, a ball, that's going to be like, Wah. right, <laughs> right, yeah, I want a ball, right. Um, so I tell the parents as well, because they're trying to honor and toggle these multiple languages. I had a child that had four languages in one household. Mm-hmm. And they, they were as an early intervention, it was sign language, Polish, Spanish and English. Oh my gosh. Like, where do you start? Right. <laughs> well, one of the things, it's an easy thing. It's each, each, um, we had an adult in each family that was the leader in that language. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, don't turn on two TVs at the same time. Yeah. So mom, if you're English and daddy, you're Spanish and grandma, you're uh, sign language and auntie, you're Polish then don't have the two TVs on at the same time. Right? Mm-hmm. And, right. and so it was, they, they would, the child knew this was the language that I speak with this person. This was the language I speak with mm-hmm. the other person. And they could speak amongst themselves in whatever language they wanted, mm-hmm. but the child could see very clearly, okay, I got a clear model with this one. I got a clear model with this one. And I told the parents to choose the language that they were proficient in, that they could give a good model because that's the other thing that parents are trying to do. They're trying to all of a sudden stop doing their home language and then they give provide a broken model mm-hmm. in English. 
It's like you're doing your child a disservice. I know what you're trying to do. It has the best of intentions. Please don't. Mm-hmm. Please don't. We got the English. Keep doing you. Keep doing your thing in your home language. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious that it's kind of the same, I guess, but you said like stick with one, like one utterance. What about mm-hmm. if, what about words? Like I've had a, I had a parent actually relatively recently ask me about that because her child's learning Spanish and English. Um, so like if they are pointing to something green and they say green, verde, is that, I think that's correct, right? You got um, it, yes. <laughs> and so they say both words. Is that okay when they're like identifying an object and they switch back and forth between translations? Does that make sense? I would do it. It's it's one way of doing it. That's not my recommended beneficial okay. way. And yeah. I'll tell you why. So I recommend for it to be routines based okay. or activity based. So mm-hmm. all of the cooking that day is going to be in Spanish. And okay. then they go to walk bath time and it's going to be in English. And then they'll go to uh, the park time and it could be in Swahili. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's a very concentrated practice. It's very clear to them what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They get a lot of more drill and practice and, and if they know what to expect and anticipate that, that those wires and those parts of their brain with that language are really going to be firing in a very yeah. clear yeah. way. And then they can pivot to the next one okay. versus it's, if you do verde and green within utterance, you keep toggling and toggling. It's like yes. they, they keep having different TVs flashing yes. back mm-hmm. and forth, back and forth versus right. like, can I just watch this one show? Like fully, really enjoy this one show. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yum. That's a great explanation of it. No, I, I agree. And that's, yeah. That's kind of where my gut was leading me to. I just, I truly wasn't a hundred percent sure on how to answer it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the hardest part is in the moment questions. Um, so I'm curious what you would recommend to me as an SLP, because that's the hardest part I have is when, um, my parents ask me a question that's related to culture or language. And I don't a hundred, I don't feel a hundred percent knowledgeable on my answer. What would you recommend? I love that question. Cause first and foremost, that shows a caring that, that I think is, is, is not a small thing. And that I really appreciate I would be vulnerable and say, you know what? I really care about this. I'm really grateful that you asked me this question because I don't want to give you any misinformation. Mm -hmm. How about I look into this and I get back to you because I'm going to go and talk to my colleague about this. I'm going to go and research this further, but don't worry. We're going to figure out what's going to be the best thing for your child. And if you don't hear from me by this day, reach out. So you also have a marker time for when they can anticipate hearing back from you. It holds you both accountable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not just going to get swept under the rug. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. The power of, I don't know, can be very strong sometimes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. It's just like, I'm not so sure. I I have an idea. You can even say I have an idea, but I don't want to give you any incorrect information. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure it's the most current research or whatever you want to, you know, how you want to frame it. And then let me get back to you on this because I really care too much about you and your child to give you the wrong information. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Cause I, like I said, I think it's sometimes that in the moment things that's hard for us as professionals, because we don't, we don't want to be wrong, but we also don't want to seem like we aren't being caring or or don't care about their culture. And I Mm -hmm. I don't want it to come across in that way. So I appreciate that. Um, Well, as long as you convey that you do care and that you care enough to look into it versus like, I don't know. And like, I guess we're just going to not know together, which is 
<laughs> you, you, we laugh, but I've definitely but heard that. Like, all right. Well, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, lastly, as we kind of wrap things up, we, we want to give you a chance to give us any resources or any specific ways that you really implement these elements into your practice and make sure that your colleagues do as well. Um, anything that you would recommend for our listeners? So let's say, yes, I do have a couple. Um, first, let me talk about some books. And I know that you guys are like handing out things too. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is uh, the culturegrams.com website. There's also bilingualtherapies.com. Okay. They have a lot of great research on developmental uh, milestones for Spanish specifically. Mm -hmm. There is Mama Lisa, M-A-M-A-L-I-S-A.com. They have all different languages around the world and there's different like songs that you can sing and you can pick like happy birthday in different parts of the world or things like that. And as we know, music is such a great way to like have a child learn no matter what the age, especially if they're learning a new language. And then you can you can piggyback between what happy birthday is in their culture and in yours or in another one. Um, I had some kiddos that, you know, in Puerto Rico, we sing happy birthday completely differently than the Mexicans. We have a completely different happy birthday song. And so you can select the country and it goes through there. That's another way to go forward and honor their culture. Talk to the parents about, hey, is this the one that you guys use? The love that you are interested, that you cared enough to check it out. Mm -hmm. um, I love uh, Goldstein's work, Brian A. Goldstein on Spanish and English speakers. Um, I am more well-versed on the research for Spanish given me speaking Spanish. And that's usually where a lot of people go to for me, but there's so much research now too. I love a lot of the research out there on African-American vernacular English, mm -hmm. uh, it, treating it as a, you know, it is another dialect and how it can, how you can, um, bridge the gap between that dialect and more formal or education-based English, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of wonderful research on that one. And I can get you the name of some of the people that I love um, from that, if you'd like. Yeah, that would That's be something awesome. that would be relevant to your, to your listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done a couple of different classes on it, taken a lot of notes because I had a lot of African-American students and also then all the African refugees. And, mm -hmm. and they do not like being clopped together with African-Americans. It's like, no, I'm not African-American. I'm from you know, Kenya, I'm from mm -hmm. Ethiopia, I'm from Nigeria. So, uh, and they're very proud of that. <laughs> and so you can maybe unintentionally offend mm -hmm. um, with that. Yeah. There's also the Bilingual Exceptional Child. That's a great book and a resource uh, by Omar um, and Erickson. We're like feverishly taking notes right now. I, know. <laughs> I can copy paste this for y'all and send it to you. No worries. Um, and then the speech and language assessment for the bilingual handicaps. This was way, it was written. It's a little bit old, as you can tell, because it uses the word handicapped and we don't really use that anymore. Um, but there's definitely some really key considerations in there that are very helpful. Great. That is so helpful. We really, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I feel like Again, our listeners will really appreciate any quick resources that they can just look to educate themselves a little bit better on, on how to be more educated and, and implement those practices in their own sessions and therapy um, as, as it comes to them. 
So and one other yeah. thing really quickly, yeah. Claire, um, and this isn't a small thing and it's super, super easy to implement, but very often overlooked. Mm -hmm. Representation is important. Mm -hmm. And so we're constantly looking at picture books and storybooks. And if the child doesn't look like the kids that we're seeing, it's the subtle way of, of the child feeling like this other culture is more mm -hmm. valuable than theirs or that they're not really being a scene. Mm -hmm. So I, I, this is yet another thing that was a consideration when I was growing up. There was no, there was very few books that, of kids that looked like me. Mm -hmm. And now I'm, every time I see these new movies and TV shows and books, I'm like, oh my God, mm -hmm. <laughs> this is what I always wanted for myself and for my siblings. And so if you can have, even if it's English speaking, but the kiddos in the books looking like the kids that are in front of you, oh my gosh, these kids light up. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that interest, that joy goes such a long way for them to making progress with you and with their goals. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I'm so glad it's so much more accessible, those books with different looking people mm -hmm. and it's not all the same. I think that's that's been a huge shift in our world and mm -hmm. in, in different cultures is being able to see different cultures and have that exposure. So I think that's really great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much series. We re really, really appreciated talking to you and we appreciate your time um, as do our listeners. So we know this will not be the last time we talk to you. I know we have lots more things we would love to pick your brain about. So I'm <laughs> sure, I'm sure we will have another episode, but thank you so much. Thank you, Claire and Rachel. I really appreciate the time. Thanks. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me, Rachel, on Instagram at supersweetspeech or on my website, speechissupersweet.com. And you can find me, Claire, on Instagram at kindly underscore speech or on Facebook on kindly speech. And then you can email Rachel and I, if you have any questions or concerns, we are let's talk about speech podcast at gmail.com. Thanks.